I'll be reading from Matthew 19, 3 through 12. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Thank you, Alex. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the institution of marriage, that it is seen as a good and high calling. But Lord Jesus, we also acknowledge that there are high standards to this calling. And that even your disciples said it would probably be better off not to be married because of such high standards you have. And God, we just submit our minds to grapple and comprehend just how high a calling marriage is, especially to those in this room that, that desire that for themselves. That God, we would be challenged to see that the institution of marriage is a picture for your gospel. And so that we would not take it for granted what this journey towards marriage looks like for us. That God, you are sovereign and you have just in mind what our path looks like and you are letting us in on that. And so God, we just pray that you would give us uh, the strength by way of your Holy Spirit to live out your revealed will, like what you expect of us as disciples of Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us to that. But slowly but surely, you would also let us in on your hidden will of what you will see come to pass with our lives, who it is that you may have for us to, to show the love of Jesus Christ to for the remainder of our lives that we would make such a commitment that could image the commitment between Jesus and your church. And so, God, would you bless us tonight as we reflect on these truths of marriage and singleness and everything that they entail. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, last semester, we began our journey through the book of the Bible known as 1 Corinthians. Uh, it is a letter that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, in this letter, he addresses problems that have been reported to him. 
as well as responding to some of the issues that they wrote him about, specifically asking him to speak to. Uh, the problem he addresses mainly in chapters 1 through 6 is this problem of division that had overtaken the church in Corinth. Um, but he slowly starts to transition to another issue. Uh, he begins to address the sexual misconduct in the church, which was the cause of some of that division. And so we left our sermon series uh, last, uh, I guess, November. Uh, with this charge from Paul at the end of chapter 6, where he says in verses 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And that is important for us to keep in mind as we head into chapter 7 tonight. We have to realize that if we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, then we are not our own. We are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He has saved us from our sins by his grace, and he has every right to tell us how to live, especially when it comes to the topics we'll be looking at tonight. So with that said, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16 say this, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Lord God, I do pray that you would be the one who speaks from your word tonight. That I would just be a mere vessel, a conduit by which your truth is declared. And that you would just show yourself gracious in what you call us to and what you offer us in terms of gifts. That God, we would respect the parameters that you've given for us in these separate giftings. That we would live accordingly and pursue whichever gift it is, with a sanctified perspective. God, would you bless this sermon tonight? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, tonight's sermon title is Sex, Celibacy, and Shalom. Sex, Celibacy, and Shalom. That is the Old Testament Hebrew word for peace. The church in Corinth wrote to Paul, specifically asking for him to speak on the topic of sex. We might find some comfort that sex has been a topic of discussion in the church for 2,000 years. There is no need for this sermon series to seem awkward or taboo. We're here to arrive at the same biblical truth that the church of Corinth received and then apply it to our lives. So let's start with this misconception of sex, starting in verse 1. They've adopted the phrase and the principle, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, they believed that sexual intercourse was defiling uh, to man and woman. And so they should just bother, not bother having sex at all. That was their, their thought. That's what they were starting to adopt. And I find it ironic that this is what much of the world assumes the Bible teaches about sex when Paul spends the following 15 verses refuting that claim and instructing three different subgroups of people in the church on what their experience with sex should entail. He's very clear. He's very instructive. Uh, the Bible is, is not uh, trying to kind of shush this away. I'm not trying to dodge people's sexual desires. He's very clear about what our ambition should be. So our aim is to be in clear and instructive as well as we look at Paul's threefold response to a misconception about sex. That's where we're going to derive our points for tonight. Paul's threefold response to a misconception about sex. The first part of his response is that God encourages a husband and wife to have sex regularly. God encourages a husband and a wife to have sex regularly. Look again at verses 2 through 5. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's immediate answer to this question of, is it good for a man and a woman to have sex, is yes. But the reason that he gives is not what we usually hear about sex in the church. Uh, The teaching from the Bible that we typically hear is that sex is a good gift from God to a married couple, a husband and a wife, with two main purposes, procreation and partnership. Procreation and partnership. It bonds the husband and wife together in pleasure as they reproduce and have children, as Scripture says, be fruitful and multiply. And that is all true, and it's, it's from the Bible. That's, that's accurate. Those are the purposes for which God designed sex. But here, Paul clues us into a third purpose God has for sex, to pacify temptation. To pacify temptation. Temptation towards what? He says sexual immorality. He says that in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. And notes again this temptation in verse 5, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What is sexual immorality that Satan is tempting us towards? Well, I preached a whole sermon about it last semester from the last passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And it's called Fleeing Sexual Immorality. And if you'd like, you can go listen to that on Bellevue's website fleeing sexual immorality. This phrase, sexual immorality, in the Greek is the word porneia, which is, of course, where we get the word pornography. When Paul uses porneia, he means any sexual behavior outside of marriage, which would include premarital sex, prostitution, adultery, polygamy, and same-sex behaviors. Now, to be clear, the vast majority of sexual behavior in our world today, God regards as morally wrong. It is sin. Sin meant to be confessed. Sin meant to be repented of. Sin meant to be placed upon the shoulders, the outstretched shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross and sin no longer entertained on the path of righteousness that God has for you. I've heard it illustrated this way. Sex is like a fire. In a fireplace, it is beautiful and gives off just the right kind of warmth. Outside of the fireplace, it is dangerous and costly. If you do not respect God's parameters for sex in marriage, it will harm you and cost you greatly. But if you do respect his parameters for sex in marriage, it will keep you from sin. 
That's Paul's point. Paul affirms that a husband and wife should have sex regularly, not denying their partner his or her conjugal rights. He reminds the married couples in Corinth that they have forfeited their bodies to the other person in the marriage. They are no longer in authority over their own bodies. Not only are they purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and are in submission to his lordship, now they have also forfeited their bodies to their partner in the marriage. I saw this play out recently in my own life in the grocery store as uh, Anna asked me if I had any ideas for what we could do for dinner. And you see, we're trying to eat healthier this year. And uh, you can imagine her face when I said mac and cheese. <laughs> Y'all, she makes the, the best mac and cheese. I'm pretty sure she just follows the directions on the box. Like, but it's so good. Um, so here I am in the pasta aisle at Kroger, a grown man, 31 years old, begging his wife for Kraft Deluxe mac and cheese. Why? Because I have forfeited my authority over my body. The weather was nice Monday, so Anna uh, told me that I should go for a run. So I did, and now my thighs are burning. I no longer have authority over my body. If I ever want a tattoo, guess who I have to ask? Anna. That's right. Because I no longer have authority over my body. Now the world can look at that and say, that sounds miserable. What if she tells you to do something you have a problem with? To those objectors, I would reply, you do not know my wife and you do not know my God. He has so brilliantly designed the institution of marriage so that we have each made a covenant to him to put the other person in the marriage before ourselves. And so we do not demand our own way. And we do not withhold that which is good. Paul says that this is the way for married couples to live. He will later go on to write in chapter 13 of this same letter, a very famous passage of scripture. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it until the Lord takes me on to glory. Love isn't primarily a feeling. Love is a commitment. It's a commitment. I will exhibit 1 Corinthians 13 in my relationship with my wife even when I don't feel like it. Why? Because that's what I signed up for. And I will do it until death do us part. Paul makes this clear to married couples in verses 10 and 11. So skip down to verses 10 and 11 of this chapter. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. 
But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. God loves marriage. He made it. He instituted it. God hates divorce. He loves marriage because it displays the gospel, his good news, that Jesus laid down his life for the church, his bride, Scripture says. So too, a husband lays down his, wife, his life for his wife. God hates divorce because it does not display the gospel. If anything, it mars it. In fact, it can damage people's understanding of the gospel, especially if the divorced couple claim to be Christians. Jesus repeatedly commands his disciples, do not divorce, which is why Paul says, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. You see, he's very familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Marriage is for life. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, Jesus, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It doesn't matter how bad your sex life gets how bad your finances are, how sharp your disagreements, how lazy he's being, how crazy she's gotten. Those excuses are invalid. And at the very top of that pile of rubbish is, I've fallen out of love. Those excuses reek of the culture and they don't make sense in the church. If you believe in the Lord Jesus and are saved by grace, he has empowered you to make it work. And not just to make it work, but to shine as a beautiful witness for his gospel as a married couple who are faithful to one another. What if she cheats? What if he's abusive? We have exceptions to those, and I'll speak to those later. But for now, we must see plainly God hates divorce but he loves marriage. And within the confines of marriage, he encourages a husband and a wife to have sex regularly. The only exception Paul can perceive of why a couple would want to hold off having sex is to have a concentrated time of prayer. How wholesome is that? This seems to be similar to a fast to like limit oneself going without so that there's a rich dependence on God and Prayers might be answered in the midst of that. But the couple should come right back together so as to fight the temptations of the enemy, which is Paul's whole point. So God encourages a husband and wife to have sex regularly. Uh, the second part of his response to this misconception of sex is that God invites single men and women to pursue celibacy or marriage. God invites single men and women to pursue celibacy or marriage. And we see that in verses 6 through 9. 
Now, as a concession, not as a commandment, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Notice that this isn't a command. It is a concession, right? Paul admits that he has a bias towards what he is proposing. Remain single as I am. He is not saying all single men and women must remain single, but he presents it as a legitimate possibility. And not just a possibility, but a gift. He says each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another, marriage or singleness. That being said, it is a gift one receives by choice. This is where we get it twisted. Paul is esteeming to unmarried men and women and even widows the high calling of lifelong singleness so that some might take him up on it. This seems to be what Jesus also esteemed to his disciples in our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 19. Remember, he's talking about the high standards he has for marriage, and his disciples respond. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry, is what they say. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, there's some debate over this passage as to which calling Jesus seems to think is harder. Is it marriage or is it singleness? What we can deduce is that both are high callings with their own sets of challenges. Paul affirms this later in 1 Corinthians 7 when he speaks to those who are betrothed, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Both marriage and singleness are challenging pursuits. The greatest challenge to marriage seems to be the heightened expectations matched by the loss of liberty. Whereas the greatest challenge to singleness seems to be the pursuit of chastity and celibacy. Both are gifts, but both are challenging. But both are also rewarding. The rewards of marriage are well known, but the rewards of singleness are often neglected. With Jesus' mention of the eunuchs, those who could not have sexual intercourse in Jesus' day, he says, some made themselves. In other words, some chose for themselves to be eunuchs for the sake of of the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom. What Jesus and the apostle Paul know from experience is that you are able to do far more for the kingdom of God as a single person than you are as a married person. They know it from experience. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 34, the unmarried or betrothed woman is concerned for the things of the Lord. She's not anxious about her husband. She's, she's anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. 
let me pose it this way. When the next natural disaster occurs and, and Bellevue rallies up a team to get together and go to those in need with the gospel so that it may be proclaimed as the Lord restores a whole community. You know what married people will be doing? They'll be at home or headed to work or going on family vacation, yelling at their kids in the car, on the couch watching Peppa Pig for the 40th time, discussing the possibility of having deluxe mac and cheese in the grocery aisle. That's where married couples will be. You know what single men and women can do? Request off of work, pack a bag, buy a ticket, start driving, hand out food and water, rebuild homes, empathize with those who are hurting, be the literal hands and feet of Jesus as they care for those in need. It makes total sense that Jesus would go 33 years on the earth as a single man. It makes total sense that Paul would remain single until his execution and go down in history as the greatest missionary to ever live. What doesn't make sense is how hell-bent we are on finding the one without at least considering what else may be available to us. That doesn't. This requires a sanctified perspective. Life is short. We are but mere vapors, God's word says. Eternity stands in the balance for people who don't know Christ but need to. Why wouldn't we leverage everything we have for the kingdom, including the option to one day marry? No one has the gift of singleness forced upon them. It is true that many are single for a long time before they get married. It is, some that, it is true that some people don't get married like they want to. But eventually, all of us who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ receive what marriage points to. Remember, it's just a symbol that points us to the real thing, an abundant life with our Savior, Jesus. We will all get that if we have claimed him as our Lord and Savior and believe savingly upon the gospel. No one is promised a marriage on earth. If you're looking in your Bible for where that exists, sorry, I have no reference for you. But all of God's people are promised marriage in heaven as the bridegroom embraces his bride. For now, while we wait for that marriage, we are invited to remain single and pursue celibacy as it pertains to our sexual desires. But if our sexual appetite proves to be too much for us and we cannot exercise self-control, we are commended to pursue marriage. Look again at verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say if they cannot exercise self-control, they should give themselves over to porneia. Doesn't say it. That's not the way out. Sexual immorality is what is to be avoided, not entertained as a solution. For us, that means no cohabitation. 
No pornography, no lowering standards for what is morally right and pure. No, he says they should get married. That is the only avenue he offers to extinguish the burn of the passion. God invited single men and women to pursue celibacy or marriage. But we shouldn't just rush into marriage with just anyone because it could lead to a conflicted home. And many of you were raised in a conflicted home. Which brings us to the third part of Paul's response to the misconception of sex. God enables a conflicted home to have shalom, to have peace. Peace as God defines it. We see that in verses 12 through 16. To the rest I say, I, Paul, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul clarifies that he is saying this, not the Lord, because he just spent verses 10 and 11 restating a command from Jesus Christ. He's getting into territory that is a little bit more nuanced than Jesus' teaching. Uh, but it is important to note that this is the Apostle Paul who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. So this isn't just godly advice. This is biblical application. He insists that so much as it depends on the believer in the conflicted home, they should not initiate divorce. However, if the unbelieving spouse initiates it, then the believer is at liberty to separate amicably. This is one way that the believer would have peace, but it isn't the primary way, nor is it the best way. Paul presents the possibility that the believing spouse could save the unbelieving spouse who would be made holy along with the kids. What does Paul mean by this? Well, I need to be very clear. There is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No human being's faith can save you. You must repent of your sin and believe for yourself. No one can do it for you. What Paul means is that the Christian in the home can have a positive influence over those in his or her care so that they live set apart. Right? That's what holy means, to be set apart. They would be set apart from the world. And in the home of a believer... It's a good place to be. This is the sanctifying influence could eventually lead the unbelieving spouse to salvation in Christ along with the children. In this way, God enables a conflicted home to have shalom. It's this Old Testament Hebrew word for peace. And it's not just the absence of conflict. It is a state of existence in which all is well. Harmony. And Paul says to the believer who is married to an unbeliever, God has called you to peace. Truthfully, God desires that for all his people. 
which is why he gives us these precious gifts and their proper parameters. So what do we do? Well, that brings us for our main point for the evening. Respect the parameters God has for his gifts, whether marriage or singleness, and pursue them with a satisfied perspective. I'm sorry, sanctified perspective. Respect the parameters God has for his gifts, whether marriage or singleness, and pursue them with a sanctified perspective. I want you to notice something. Paul is writing to the entire church in Corinth. Yet he addresses these subgroups. Do you see it? The, the marrieds, the unmarried, the widowed, betrothed, and the conflicted. What he, we can deduce from that truth is that it is good for everyone in the church to hear what God expects of his people, regardless of their calling or assignment. It's a good thing for us to hear what's expected in every season of life. But one reason has to be that you could find yourself in one of those other subgroups one day. In fact, many of you, that's, that's the hope, right? If you desire to be married, you're hoping that one day you will be in that married subgroup. For a small number of us in this room, it just takes the death of the one we've committed ourselves to for us to be designated to another subgroup. But my biggest concern is that some of you won't take your evaluation of the other person in the dating process seriously. You'll convince yourself that the person claims to be a Christian. He comes to church, she has a Bible verse in her bio, and yet there isn't any sense in which that person is born again in the Spirit. Oh, there is quite a difference to call yourself a Christian and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's no appreciation for the gospel. There's no obedience to the commands of Christ. You know, my concern is that you'll set the bar really low. Let the other person fool you, get married, and you'll end up in that third category and have a conflicted home with someone who doesn't follow Jesus. Remember, what God desires for you is peace, shalom. But that peace only exists within his parameters. So respect them and pursue those good gifts within those parameters. What might that look like? To start, if you feel like you're burning alive and the only solution is marriage, then you need to assess that passion and its source. If you tell me that you're burning alive, my follow-up question is going to be, are you engaged in pornography? Listen, you want to destroy your marriage, bring that sinful habit into holy matrimony, and you will burn it from the inside out. You need to make it your foremost priority, not to find a spouse, but to repent of that sin, fight that addiction, and get some accountability and be delivered from it once and for all. I've heard it said, what you feed is what you grow. So starve the beast before you settle down with the damsel or the prince. 
If you do evaluate your passion and you find that the source is good, honest, and a holy desire, here's your next step. If you want to be married, you need to reflect on the difference between standards and preferences. Do not lower your standards. Here's your bare minimum standard if you are a follower of Jesus. Does the person that you're interested in love Jesus? No, beyond the shadow of a doubt, they love Jesus Christ. And they show that love by keeping his commandments. Because after all, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Commandments like pray, give, fast, love your enemies, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be a servant, fear God, take my yoke upon you, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, honor your parents, make disciples, feed my sheep. Do they love Jesus and keep those commandments that he gave his disciples? That's your standard. And if they do meet that standard, then you move on to preferences. How handsome is he? Is she a good dancer? Keep those in check. Because looks are fleeting. Interests change. Chemistry simmers. Make sure you keep those things as mere secondary items. Don't lower your standards. If anything, lower your preferences. Keep your standards strong. Do they love Jesus? Bottom line, if you desire to be married, it will require you to prepare for that marriage. Jesus has high standards for marriage, again, because it displays his gospel. His disciples confess that it would be better to be single than have to live up to those standards that Jesus has for marriage. In other words, you've got your work cut out for you. Get off Instagram and get in God's word. That's where you'll find a real depiction of marriage. If you desire marriage, prepare for it. That means read books, listen to podcasts. Yes, go on dates, but guard your heart. Reject people that don't measure up. Do really difficult things. Have hard conversations. Lead your family of one. And discover contentment. By God's grace, you can prepare to one day meet the high standards for godly marriage. If you think you're done growing, you're wrong. But before any of these, before you try to do any one of those, I'd love to challenge you to do one thing. Imagine. Imagine what the Lord could do if you remained single for the remainder of your time on this earth. Think about all that he could accomplish through you if you resolved to be single, to stay single, and to die single, completely devoted to his kingdom without distraction. Give it serious contemplation and simply ask God, is this what you might have for me? Let's just see how he might answer those prayers. Not everyone is given that gift. 
but to those who would receive it, it is a high and a noble calling, well worth your time on this earth. And it might just lead to the peace that you're looking for.